Leading Ideas Talks podcast is brought to you by the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Subscribe free to our weekly e-newsletter, Leading Ideas, at churchleadership.com slash leadingideas. Protect your congregation and your ministry with online sexual ethics training for pastors. The Lewis Center's Keeping Our Sacred Trust Boundary Training Program offers two courses to help prevent clergy sexual misconduct, understanding clergy sexual ethics, and maintaining boundaries in a digital age. Both courses are confidential, ecumenical, and refreshed for 2023. Each course is $49 and includes 0.5 CEU credits. Learn more and enroll at lewisonlinelearning.org. And remember, to stay up to date with the latest church leadership strategies and information, please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos. How can the church confront its complicity in sexual abuse and misconduct? Ruth Everhart says churches must restore justice by creating safe spaces for victims to share their stories while committing to appropriate measures to both prevent and respond to incidents of misconduct and abuse. Welcome to Leading Ideas Talks podcast. My name is Ann Michael, and I'm a senior consultant with the Lewis Center for Church Leadership. And I'm also co-editor of Leading Ideas e-newsletter. And I'm your host for this episode of Leading Ideas Talks. I am so honored today to be speaking with Ruth Everhart, who is a Presbyterian pastor. She's an author, a Christian feminist, and she is one of the leading voices on the need to address issues of sexual abuse in the church. Um, she's the author of several books, but most recently, The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. And that's what we're going to be talking about in our time together today. Um, welcome, Ruth, and thanks for being with us. Thanks, Anne. So glad to be here. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to begin by acknowledging that this subject is um, so deeply personal for so many people, but for you. Um, and since many of our listeners may not know your story, um, if you don't mind, I will share that I learned in reading your book that you were raped at gunpoint as a college student. Um, and then in your first pastorate, you were groomed and sexually abused by the senior pastor in the church that you were serving. And then you really suffered the indignity of having your complaints trivialized and rationalized away by the people that were responsible in the church. And it's really a harrowing, um, painful story to read, um, but you believe it's critical for the church to listen to the stories of victims and survivors, um, stories that a lot of us would prefer really not to have to hear. Uh, so I wanted to begin by asking, um, why is telling stories um, so important to Me Too Reckoning? Well, Anne, thanks for acknowledging how really deeply personal this subject is, because it is that to me and just everybody who's involved in the subject of sexual abuse in churches. And I think that the reasons that stories matter so much is that's how we get at truth. Um, so often, the person who tells the story is the person who has the power. And so that means that usually the stories are told by the person with power. So to center the story on victims and survivors completely changes the narrative and changes then the lens of how we look at the subject. I think that was the great revelation of the hashtag MeToo movement when it burst mm -hmm. on the scene. And that's what 
framed a different kind of a narrative and allowed women's voices or often men's voices too, but the voices of victims and survivors to uh, be heard. So it's absolutely essential to tell stories. And it's not incidental that scripture is completely full of stories. Um, mm -hmm. We break it down. It's a big storybook. And, um, and so to come at it that way, that's why I had the idea of intertwining the biblical stories with the, the current stories and kind of to see how they informed each other. Mm -hmm. now, I believe in the opening of the book, you say that, that uh, story is the way that we um, change our culture, the way that we define our culture, and that we can't really change things without being willing to tell stories. And I think that's true of every justice issue, um, mm -hmm. that we don't really have the eyes to see it until we see it interpreted through somebody's story. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we have this kind of distance from it. And that's not powerful enough to affect the kind of culture change that's necessary to deal with the justice issue. Mm -hmm. I, I want to go back to the point you made briefly about the Bible, because uh, I first became acquainted with your work uh, in reading an article that you have published in Christian Century uh, entitled Women of the Bible Say Me Too. And I think it came out in 2018, right as the hashtag Me Too movement was so much in the news. And um, I, I thought that was such a powerful, powerful article. Um, you lifted up the stories of, of Tamar and Bathsheba and Dina and other biblical women who were victims of sexual violence and abuse. And then in your book, you do such an artful job of interweaving those biblical stories alongside your own story and the story of other uh, survivors of abuse. Um, and, you know, it, it, the way that you tell it, these Bible stories uh, became for me such a sense, uh, source of solidarity and spiritual insight. But at the same time, it was also a reminder to me of how much misogyny and mistreatment of women is in our scriptures and how often, you know, those stories have, have served to normalize or legitimize uh, mistreatment of women. And so I, I, I guess I, I wanted to ask about, about how we regard the Bible in this sense. Um, you know, you bring such an enlightened feminist perspective to, to scripture, and yet not everybody does. <laughs> uh, and so just at a working level day to day in our ministries, I'm wondering how, how, how can we prevent the Bible from being used as a cudgel from, uh, to be used in a positive way with regard to this issue? Well, we can only control how we use the Bible, but I think we can't control how other people do it. But what we can do is kind of demonstrate a different kind of use of scripture. And I do think that with the changes since the pandemic shutdowns, you know, every uh, preacher is now a media preacher, right? We're on live stream, mm -hmm. we're on YouTube. There is the possibility of disseminating a message more widely. And so to be like really conscious of how it is you're using the Bible um, and to let yourself be informed by other um, kinds of approaches to be really contextual in your approach, to be informed by liberation theology, queer theology, feminist theology, womanist theology, liberation theology, you know, to have that lens and then to just be self-evident about it as you, as you work with scripture, you know, to really, you know, plunge into scripture in a sermon or in a, in a Bible study. And, and to do that just 
as transparently as possible to kind of wrestle with the text on the page or in the sermon. And then when you hear people use the Bible as a cudgel, I mean, can we call it out? The same way you wouldn't stand for listening to someone tell a racist joke or mm -hmm. make a misogynistic slur. You know, you can say, nah, well, that's not really what the Bible's doing, is it? Um, uh, you know, I, I read the Bible differently than that, but, but that requires being comfortable enough with scripture, you know, to right. kind of engage it. And, and I do, I do understand that we don't want to, I sure so tend to back away from that kind of engagement. And, and because we've become so polar, polarized in our country, and we've got these kind of two alternative worlds going, right. it's, it is challenging. Yeah. So we can only do from our part, own our part, and call out what we see um, yeah. as best we can. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that response, because I think that's exactly what I was getting at, about how, you know, we may come, we may see the scriptures from a certain light in, in how we think about these issues, and others are seeing them in a different way, and I think that does, does pose a challenge. Um, I, something out of, else about your book um, really jumped out to me, and that's the, um, your story and some of the other stories that you highlight really helped me see how terribly unprepared uh, local congregations are to deal with issues of sexual abuse or harassment when they arise um, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but the one that really stood out to me was, I mean, in the stories you told, it was often um, volunteer leaders, officers in the church, people like you and me, you know, who are church members who maybe hold a committee position, maybe they're on the personnel committee or something like that, and they kind of are the front line in having to uh, deal with um, a problem or complaints or suspicion, and they are often really ill-prepared to do this and have conflicting interests, and um, I you know, it just seemed to highlight such a such a serious issue. I, I wondered how we can do a better job right. of, of helping these frontline congregational leaders, often who are volunteers, um, uh, do a better job. That's right, because we're really investing professional level work in people who are essentially amateurs, you know, well-meaning people, but they are not prepared for what they have to deal with. And when it's something as, you know, dynamite, a package of sexual harassment and abuse, you know, I can have sympathy for the fact that they are not prepared um, for what they have to, to manage. Um, mm -hmm. So the only way to do that is to really be intentional about equipping them, you know, at a time when the world isn't burning, you know, at a time when you have the, 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 the moment which can be hard to find to, to set up a time to have a training opportunity for the people that would be impacted by this. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't want to wait till there's been an accusation to tell people how to respond. You want to get ahead of that and you want to have this, um, this opportunity to talk about this is how this should be approached, you know, to learn the basics of trauma-informed care. You know, what does mm -hmm. that mean? So, you know, to work on that vocabulary to talk about centering the victim um, and not uh, the perpetrator, to talk about what is the role of the of using 
the legal system and the justice system if you're in a church? Is that ever permissible? I mean, there's so many ways that you can talk about this in different ways in adult education or in leadership training. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a Presbyterian and my presbytery, on, which is National Capital Presbytery, so it's a little more forward thinking. Um, we've been required to do something called boundary training for couple of decades and we have to mm-hmm. renew it every three years they've gotten to the point now where it's an online course and I think that's right. so great so there are like opportunities out there to just to just have people mm-hmm. do things online to you know have conversations um, with your leadership um, to talk about an adult and you just have to come at it from different ways uh, so people yeah. are more equipped yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm certainly aware of, of uh, different uh, boundary trainings. In fact, the Lewis Center has uh, some programs as well, but they are, um, they're aimed at clergy. They, we, we haven't really ever thought about it, what would be involved in training some of the laypersons uh, or, or other congregational leaders that, that might be in positions of responsibility with regard to responding uh, to um, uh, sexual abuse as opposed to preventing, because uh, I know you do talk about that there's an issue of preventing sexual misconduct and an issue of responding to it, that both are within the purview of, of the local congregation. Right. Yeah. So do you think things are getting better? I, I mean, I was aware as I was reading your stories that some of some of it was describing things that had happened some time ago, and and obviously there's been a lot of concern and publicity in recent years. Do do you feel like things are getting better? Well, I think that in terms of prevention, it's become really normal for churches to have like some kind of a safer mm-hmm. church policy that protects right. children, mm-hmm. and you, and I mean that's normative and that's wonderful. You know, we need to be at that place where we mm-hmm. have safeguards. Um, in terms of responding to abuse, what happens is sometimes allegations like mine are from the past. And that's difficult because you are bringing a more contemporary lens to something that may have happened a long time ago. That, um, and this happens with sexual abuse stories all the time. People bring up allegations of things that happened a while ago. And so churches are becoming a little more adept at listening to that. Some of them are actually lifting, lifting you know, the statute of limitations and so on, um, just like some of our legal systems are. And that's really important. Um, and I, I do see a few churches that have moved much more quickly to using the legal system. You know, there was this temptation, I think, to view any kind of sexual misbehavior as as sin rather than Mm -hmm. as a crime and to see it as both um, to say that no this is well um, a crime that needs to be prosecuted in a court of law and that a court of law can be a tool uh, that the church uses you know and 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 it's also a sin and, and that has to be dealt with but that can't over over overreach the whole experience because what happens is if you put it in that category of sin then someone can make, and we see this happening in some of the southern baptist churches uh some of the stories that continue to come out of there where people can make a public confession 
and you know even receive a standing ovation for having you know said that without following those next steps of accountability and punishment and restitution so I would love to say that things are getting better and I do think they are, you know, incrementally and, and it's a big topic and, you know, it covers from yeah. the Roman Catholic church. I mean, I mainly focus on the mainline Protestant church because that's my world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think another thing that your book really um, helped me focus on is how, how, how many pressures within a local congregation really push against, you know, wanting to hear uh, someone's story, particularly if it's a, a, something that's happened within the congregation. You know, congregations are so poor, I think, at, at dealing with any kind of conflict or sensitive issue. And I, I think, you know, it, it's so easy for people to want to, um, assume the best of, of their leaders, to not imagine that something bad could happen within the community of faith that they love and, you know, denialism and that, you know, just wanting to look the other way. I, I mean, it's just, it's a toxic brew. I, I, I mean, I, I just, it really helped me see it that way. So glad. Yeah. yeah. So, um, at one point in the book, you wrote that confidentiality can become complicity. And that really stood out at me. Um, and I know that that's probably just a huge, huge subject and that we don't have time to get into into too great a depth today. But I did want to ask you to speak to it briefly because I think that the cloak of secrecy and confidentiality things so often get wrapped in can allow problems to remain hidden or ignored. And so I, I wonder kind of, you know, how we can think about a balance between the level of confidentiality uh, and the need for truth and telling and accountability in, in these matters. So one of the stories I tell was from a church where I, a very large church where I was an associate pastor, kind of way down the totem pole. And there had been abuse within the youth, um, the youth program. And so the lens that I take on that story is from the point of view of my good friend, Ginny, who let me use her real name. And we spent hours in interviews as she told me the story from her point of view, because she had been one of the people who protected the abuser. And I felt like it was so important to include her point of view because I, I wanted to communicate that you know, it's understandable when people get on the wrong side of this, not because they're evil people or they're trying to cover something up, but because they do, usually it's the people who value clergy, and, you know, and value their role within the, the congregation that might be the most likely to protect them, mm -hmm. even when they um, have been abusive. So, yeah, I did want to include Ginny's story in that and it did cause me to think a lot about this very subject about what's the difference between confidentiality and secrecy you know mm -hmm. when is privacy appropriate and when is it become twisted and i think that um the thing to ask is when we weaponize privacy so that um, who who is it that's suffering you know who are we protecting if that our concerns about not telling a story are to protect the person who is at fault, well, 
that should make us pause, right? Mm -hmm. but, but it's not so easy because the, our culture has a long history of trying to protect victims. I think about when I was raped at gunpoint when I was in my, um, my senior year of college and I was only 20 years old. One of the dynamics, and this happened a long time ago, but I don't know how different it is now. One of the dynamics was that, you know, they were going to protect our names and not reveal mm -hmm. who we were. But does that mean that we had done something wrong that we needed to be protected from? Yeah. You know, so it's, it's not an easy subject. Uh, you get into to who's at fault, who benefits from... Um, being hidden. And I do feel like our cultural norms are shifting a little bit about that. I see victims stepping up and claiming their story a lot more quickly and a lot more forthrightly than they used to. And I applaud that um, because it reinforces that the victim is not to blame. Um, mm -hmm. Why, why, how, why, I always say, why is it so different than breaking your leg? It's this really crappy thing that happened to you, but it doesn't mean you were at fault. And yeah. when we treat it as if it's just unspeakable, I think that's such an important word, it's unspeakable. We say, we cannot talk about this. So I, I just disagree with that so wholeheartedly. I mean, we have a whole treasure trove of scripture in which these things are not unspeakable. There's lots yeah. of stories about sexual assault in the Bible. Um, and, and there's, you know, we have a, a savior who, who spoke about things that other people didn't want him to speak about. I mean, this is why we have books and you have podcasts and we have institutions and we have sermons, you know, um, to, to break that open and let the light shine into it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's I, in the in the church that I attend. Uh, within the last five years, we have had a clergy person have to leave the ministry because of misconduct. And um, from the point of view of a parishioner in the church, um, you know, we we were left very clueless um, about what was happening and why. Uh, and I think most people in the congregation still feel that way. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think there were legal considerations, uh, uh that, that impacted, uh, what was said and, and what wasn't said, but, but from the perspective of the congregations processing and healing and, and, and all of this, we really were left, um, you know, in the lurch, you know, without a lot of transparency and, and truth telling and, and it, it's, um, I, I think it was very, very um, challenging uh, because I, I, you know, I think it really was a legal lens that was applied to it by our denominational leaders, and they they were, you know, um, much more concerned about making sure that they, you know, uh, went through the right legal legal steps, and not so concerned about what the congregation was knowing and experiencing. Uh, it makes me crazy. It's, that's a common story, and. The thing is that, you know, they can talk about fiduciary responsibility or being a steward of the institution and, you know, they're doing their job and, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, don't we live by a different set of rules? Um, the church that I was just talking about where my friend Jenny was working with the youth ministry and, and this youth pastor, well, he was a lay person. He wasn't actually ordained, which didn't matter. Um, but when the senior pastor kind of told that story 
in worship. I mean, he, he did so against the advice of the insurers of the congregation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it yeah. takes a real boldness to step outside that norm. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder you were interested in my book. Now I understand, <laughs> Anne. Well, I, um, so I, the point you made about the perpetrator having been a lay person, um, I, I, I heard you spoke on, speak on this subject uh, just recently. And one of the things you said, uh, uh, I took note of, because you, you said that um, when we look out at our pews on Sunday mornings, uh, there are people sitting you know, congregants sitting in our pews on Sunday in Sunday morning in worship who are both abusers and victims of abuse. Because I think so often we think about this issue, at least in the work that we do at the Lewis Center, we tend to think about it in terms of uh, clergy persons and, and the potential for clergy persons themselves uh, being perpetrators of abuse or engaging in misconduct. But it's not just the clergy, uh, and it's not just what happens in the church. <laughs> I mean, there, you know, uh, and, and and so um, I kind of wondered, having heard you say that, and I thought that was really an important observation. Um, what does that mean in terms of the church's opportunity and responsibility to lead on these issues? Yeah, yeah, it's that's a tough one. Um, I do think that you know, past have to almost develop a spidey sense about who out there might be an abuser. I, um, I feel like I try to sniff them out. Um, and, and then I do follow up with one-on-one -on -one conversations with uh, people who I think might be at risk. But there's another issue that's even harder to talk about. And that is that I don't know that men have a place to talk about the fact that they've grown up in this misogyny mm -hmm. and in toxic masculinity and what were the message that they got about um, the way they interact with women I mean how many men have done things in their life that they now feel ashamed of that do they have a story about which they are at least deeply chagrined where it has at least crossed mm -hmm. their mind now that they may have abused their power that at the time it was not in their awareness and they've had a shift like we, we, we talk about abusers, you know, like it's, they're all at the one end of the spectrum and they're all predators and, and there are predators out there and mm -hmm. our churches can be breeding grounds for them and can be invitational to them uh, because of using volunteers and so on. So we're trying to close those doors. So what I'm talking about is kind of the other end of the spectrum. You're kind of your decent guy who grew up thinking on a really gut level that he's more valuable than any of the women he comes in contact with, which gets translated to them in all kinds of ways, which become abusive. Can the words of Jesus shift this guy's paradigm? And how can the church help us, help, help us as a culture to, to change? You yeah. know, my, my, like, my wildest, my wildest dream is to have a, a group at a church where men sit around and actually talk about this, not as how they've been victimized, but how they've been victimizers mm -hmm. and to shed the light of Jesus on that. I mean, I think that's maybe the next frontier in this movement. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you shared that because something else that really stood out to me in reading your work is where you say that 
sexual abuse is a consequence of patriarchy. And until we can really address uh, uh, patriarchy, and then you also talk about clericalism later in the book, which I think is, is another ism that relates to this. But I mean, those are the root causes. And it, it seems like so much of where we're putting our energy is, you know, uh, we, we're, we're, we're doing trainings, we're, we're, we're putting technical bandages on an adaptive challenge of, of making church and society more equitable and just uh, and valuing um, of women and other people who are victims. Um, and that's a different kind of work than just sending people to safe sanctuaries training, I think. The culture shift is always the hardest work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. But, it, you know, you, in the final chapter of your book, you focus on some of the things that congregations can do. Uh, and, you know, what I really appreciated is some of them are simple things, you know, sort of the low hanging fruit. But I think some of it is really deeper work around um, lament and listening and creating safe spaces where people can have these conversations. And so, um, you know, can you share some of the things that a local congregation might do to, to begin to work on some of these deeper issues and, and, and create some, some spaces for that, for that storytelling that we talked about that was so important? Yeah, the, the, um, the low-hanging fruit, as you referred to it, I think is kind of sending out signals to people that this is a place where you can talk about difficult things. And so maybe it's, you know, putting a hotline number in a restroom. Mm -hmm. It's maybe having a sermon or a sermon series with hashtag me too, just so you can put it on your outdoor church sign, you know, mm. and um, just as a, as a signal that, oh, look, they're talking about that there, mm -hmm. you know, that during April, uh, which is sexual assault awareness month and during October, which is domestic violence awareness month, that you kind of capitalize on those cultural moments and you have an article in your newsletter or you know a sidebar you know what are what does grooming look like let's just talk about that you know just mm -hmm. um, something that goes a little deeper and kind of communicates that this is a place that's safe to talk about that and then I think the next layer then is to create these forums like an adult educate you know I, well there's the preaching thing and that mm -hmm. was my big thing that was the big the Christian Century article that you referred to early in the podcast, I mean, that was the focus of it was really encouraging people to preach on some of these stories in the Bible that we ignore. Mm -hmm. I have to say that because I felt like I couldn't write the article and not do it, I have preached all those sermons in a church that decided they didn't really want me there anymore. I mean, there is a cost to doing this work. I've, I've paid the cost in many different ways. And I'm just saying, um, so, so I understand why people want to tread cautiously. You know, some people can only tolerate this tiny amount of, of awareness um, and they get very nervous. You know, people don't like to talk about sex in church. And right. fortunately, sexual abuse gets put in the sex bucket instead of the violence bucket, right? Mm -hmm. right. You know? yeah. So 
I, yeah, I think that's so often why the conversation gets uh, shut down in the church yes. because people people kind of want to avert their eyes. It's 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 embarrassing and and, and shameful for them. It's yucky. To, yeah, it's yucky. Yucky. I think at some point in the book you said people need a a, a a stout heart and a strong stomach for this work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And yeah. you have to constantly frame it as a justice issue, you know, and, and not as a women's issue, you know, um, because then it just gets sidelined. And to me, the most important thing is to feel like you're not doing it alone, to feel like there are partners out there, you know, which is why I reached out in the written word and why, you know, I continue to do this work. And I do it because I know there are partners out there listening. Um, mm -hmm. And I value them. I value each story. When I sign my book, I sign it. Every story matters mm -hmm. uh, because they do. And, and so every person's efforts to bring justice to a story, to bring the light of Jesus Christ into a place that is dark and painful for someone is super important, you know? And so we have to get out of our comfort zone to do that. But that's what, um, that's what Jesus asks us to do. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that, that's a wonderful last word that every story matters. Uh, and what a wonderful way to summarize um, your work as well as the biblical witness on this subject. So uh, thank, thank you, Ruth. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And I know so many people will benefit from um, hearing your perspectives on these. Thank you so much. Thanks, Anne. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for Leading Ideas Talks. Please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos.